Men, can I just make a suggestion? Don't allow what we've been doing today to be one and done. All right? Uh, these have been 24 very blessed hours. But there's no reason why this kind of a thing has to be once a year. Really. Uh, I, I was just sitting there a moment ago. I appreciate the, the men that prayed for and prayed with me. Uh, that ought to be the norm in church life. Uh, really, that's the body of Christ at its best. And so I would encourage you in that way. I'll just mention this. In your materials that you've been given and so on, uh, I put a couple of items. Uh, you may have seen there was a, a kind of a bulletin type paper entitled The Quiet Hour, uh, a guide to an hour alone with God. I'll just give you a, a little hint. There are seven more of them on our ministry website and the website information is there. But uh, they're in a PDF format. You can print them off. You can copy as many as you want. That's why they're there. But if you really enjoy something like was done yesterday, uh, these are good resources that you can just use over and over again. Uh, there's a AAA prayer meeting sheet there. Uh, again, on the website, there's a whole collection of those kind of things that can be copied and printed and used in your own church prayer meetings, your own Bible study, your own family. So I just wanted you to know that's all there. It's free. And all you need to do is go get it. Let's take our Bibles. Thank you for allowing me to share during these days. It's been a, a great, great blessing. Go with me, if you will, please, to the book of Job, chapter 5. I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit. Uh, we have heard a lot in the last two days about the aspect of prayer that involves our requests how we pray, when we pray, what we pray for, and so on. I want to kind of flip the coin, so to speak, and in this final session speak to you more about how you handle the answers to prayer. And I hope this will be an encouragement because, to be very honest with you, sometimes it's difficult to process the answers. It would be a whole session in itself, but I do believe that God answers prayers in sometimes a definite way, sometimes in a denied way, sometimes in a delayed way, sometimes in a different way. I understand that, but that would be another lesson for another day. But I'm simply saying that it can be difficult to process what God is doing and how He's doing it when we pray. There is nothing in Scripture that prayer teaches or is taught as a name it, claim it, you ask for it, you got it concept. May I remind you, prayer is not the means by which we get what we want. It's the means by which we find out what God wants. And I think all that's very important to balance out everything that we have said. Well, here we are in Job chapter 5. And I want to just direct your attention to a couple of verses. You know the story. You think you've had a bad day. You ain't seen nothing yet. At least when we read the book of Job. Job in chapters 1 and 2 
is incredible. I marvel at what we read in that chapter about the days when Job lost so much. But you know, to be honest with you, as you begin to work through this book, let's face it, the best of men are men at best, and Job at times struggled as a man. Well, here we are in Job chapter 5. The discussion is continuing with him and his friends. Verse number 6, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And all God's men said, Amen. Amen. We know that to be true. But notice verse 8, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Notice that phrase, unto God would I commit my cause. Heavenly Father, I don't for one moment claim to understand everything that you are doing. And I don't have to because I trust you. But Lord, I realize that some of us at certain times do struggle even with that element of trust. Particularly when we've prayed and we're waiting to see how the answer will come. Lord, have your way in this session, and I pray that what is shared will be a blessing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Brethren, I don't for one minute feel like our family is the exception to the rule, but I will tell you the last three years have not exactly been the easiest time of our lives. I have become very familiar with the eighth floor of the Hospital for Advanced Medicine at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville. My father spent a month there fighting for his life after the widow-maker heart attacks all but took his life. I spent a lot of time at the Cancer Institute at Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, as over the last couple of years, my younger sister has battled up to stage four cancer. Thank God she's doing better at the moment. I've spent a lot of time at Mount Nittany Medical Center in State College, Pennsylvania. My dear wife has been to the surgery center six times in the last year and a half for various procedures. It's just been one of those seasons of life. I told you where I was last Friday and Saturday with my mother and the, the loss of her vision and what is happening now in her situation. I'm not here to gripe. I'm just here to say life isn't always easy. It's not that I think we're worse off than any of you because very likely others have experienced much the same kind of a thing. But I do know that when these things go on in life, sometimes they perplex us. It's not an issue of being a pessimist. It's not an 
issue of being an optimist. It's being a realist. I guess it was last summer there was a discussion held at my parents' home. Interestingly enough, it involved my parents, my wife, and my sister. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. And initially, it was my sister who was just sharing from her heart some of the occasional frustrations she had felt through much of what I've just described to you. And in the process of the conversation, she said one of the hardest things for her is, for example, to be on someone's Facebook and read that just a few weeks ago or a few months ago they were battling a terminal illness and we prayed and Today they're free of that disease. They're completely recovered from the injury. And, and she said, the thing that always is hardest for her is suddenly God is good because he answered my prayer. As if to say God became good when he answered my prayer. And she said, that's so hard for me. She said, I get so frustrated because sometimes the answer is and sometimes the answer isn't. And how do you work through those times? Well, as I said, I wasn't in the conversation. I wasn't there for the discussion, but I heard about it and it got me thinking. It drove me back to the Word of God. And men, I believe that it was out of that discussion that God gave me three very important truths that apply or must be applied when trouble comes in life. How do you handle it when trouble comes? I want to give you these three things and I won't be long but I want you to have them because, men, the truth is either you needed them, you need them, or you will need them. Either yesterday, today, or tomorrow, all of these will help you in some way. And if they don't help you, they'll help someone close to you. So let me give these to you. And each one of them, I'm going to give you a biblical example just to help set the picture more clearly. Here we go. Number one, when trouble comes, remember this. The grace of God will sustain you in hard times. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 says this, God is able, love that phrase, you want to do a good Bible study, search it, God is able, it's all throughout Scripture, to make all grace abound to you, that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. A lot of superlatives in that verse. It's a verse about God's grace. Men, what is the grace of God? This is my homemade definition, but it works good. The grace of God is all that God is for all that I need. It's that sufficiency that 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 is talking about. It's the fact that wherever you are, 
God is enough. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a sermon in itself. We'll not do that today. But let me just show you an amazing prayer that was prayed by the Apostle Paul. We've already talked about, we've already referenced the fact that Paul's prayer life was the key to his preaching and his church planning and his mentoring and his evangelism and his missionary work and his miracles. And Paul was a man who knew how to get results from God. And so to be honest with you, when you come to 2 Corinthians 12, you would think that the matter he was going to pray about here was rather minor compared to moving continents and changing nations and and so on. Let's look at it briefly. I can't say that I know everything about the first six verses of this chapter other than the fact that Paul had experienced something unprecedented even in very likely getting a taste of heaven. Then we come to verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Let me stop right there for a moment. I'm not absolutely certain even what the thorn in the flesh was, though there has been varied speculation. Some have suggested it was a limitation with his eyesight. And there are several times when he references concern about his ability to see. Some have said it involved a speech impediment of some form that limited him when he was trying to talk. Others have spoken of the fact that his body through some of the things listed in 2 Corinthians 11 shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and had taken a toll on his body resulting in permanent disabilities. It has even been suggested that maybe Paul dealt with something like a chronic fatigue because he often speaks of living in weakness, coming in weakness. Don't know for sure. But here's what I do know. Whatever it was that Paul experienced... This thorn in the flesh, it was a physical problem that humbled him and hurt him. Don't know more specifically than that. He speaks of the messenger of Satan who buffeted him. To buffet literally means to punch, to strike him. It was as if day after day after day he suffered hard-hitting blows in his physical body. So we come to verse 8. Yes, Paul, the man of prayer, what did he do? Exactly what any of us would have done. Exactly what any of us do now when someone gets a bad diagnosis or goes through a traumatic injury or faces a permanent handicap or whatever. Verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. He asked God to remove it. And we should. Watch what happens. 
And he, being God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Men, if I could completely explain this, that would make me God. So don't expect that to happen. But here's what I see. Paul comes to God and says, Dear God, will you please take away this physical ailment? And God said, No. I'm going to leave it there. But along with it, I'm going to give you my grace, which will be sufficient and which will sustain you. You see, God said, your physical ailment is going to empty you of yourself so that you can be full of me. Guys, is that not a great way to approach physical limitations? God is using them to empty me of myself so that I can be full of him. That's why Paul would go on and say, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, I take pleasure in in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear brother, understand today that God's ultimate purpose is not to keep you healthy and wealthy. To make you secure and successful. To give you all the things and thrills of life. Every pleasure and possession you could possibly enjoy. That's not God's ultimate. That's the way the world thinks. Because the world is focused on the here and now. But those of us who know the Lord are focused on the then and there. And God is doing things now to prepare us for then. And to accomplish more in the process. My wife has not been with me to hardly a meeting in the last eight or nine months. That's not been easy for her. That's not been easy for me. Believe me, we've had to throw ourselves into this passage of Scripture over and over and again and just say, God, don't understand it. Don't have it figured out. But we are depending upon you for your grace to sustain us. And it does. It will. But let me give you a second thing. Number one, the grace of God will sustain you in hard times. Number two, the goodness of God will encourage you in good times. Psalm chapter 27 and verse 13 says this, King David speaking, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The goodness of God. Do you know who said that? David. 
Take your Bible quickly. Go with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Again, I don't have time to develop the story greatly except to say that David and his mighty men were away on a mission. They come home to Ziklag, their hometown. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel 30 tells us they found that the Amalekites had invaded and Ziklag had been smitten and burned with fire. Verse 2, they had taken the women captives. They took all the women and children as hostages. Wow. Can you imagine? Verse 3, David and his men came to the city. It was burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Verse 4, then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. They literally dried up their tear ducts crying. You know what's interesting? We're given a list of David's mighty men. These were tough guys. These are men who accomplished some amazing feats of strength. But at the loss of their homes and the loss of their families, they literally wept till they couldn't weep anymore. But then we find in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. And this is a little hard to comprehend, but here goes. For the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. You say that's impossible. No, folks, it really isn't. Because not only are we a physical and mental being, we're an emotional being. And I hate to say it, but in the amazing design of the Creator, emotions, as powerful as they are, have the ability to overcome the strongest mind and the strongest body. I spent three years as a trauma chaplain. I had spent a number of years in fire and rescue, but I spent some years while we were starting this ministry as a trauma chaplain and because we weren't traveling a lot, I could work at the hospital and it was my job to show up as the shock absorber when traumatic events happened. I remember one particular night, a 16-year-old boy had been killed in a neighboring county in an automobile accident. I was there when the ambulance arrived with his body and I was there at the door when his parents came through the door and it was my job to care for them and you can only imagine how difficult of an evening it was. I had to take them back and pull the curtain and pull the sheet back and you can only imagine the grief and the loss. A little while later, we're in the family room. Mom is sitting there in a chair, her head's down. She's very quiet. I walked over to her and I got down on one knee in front of her. And as I had done on other occasions, I said, Ma'am, could I pray with you? 
When I said that, she looked up at me and she said, God hasn't helped us yet. Why would he help us now? And she took her fist and she pulled back and took a swing at my face. And if I had not flipped over backwards on the floor, she'd have punched me right in the face. A little bit later, her husband was standing there in the room. The coroner is standing next to me. This man turns around and he starts pounding on the wall and yelling. He turned around. He said, I am so angry I could kill somebody. I'll start with one of you guys maybe. You know what happened? Emotions overran the strongest minds and bodies. I wasn't the problem. But at that moment, these people lost control. That's what happened in David's situation. The men that had served him so loyally suddenly began picking up stones as if to say, you're the one that got us into this mess. We will take your life. Wow, you talk about a desperate moment in David's life. Things were not going well and they sure didn't seem like they were going to get any better real soon. But men, you've got to see the last part of verse 6. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Why could David... Years later, say, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's because he had come this close to fainting. Come to think of it, he'd come this close to getting killed by his own men. But he had experienced the fact that even when life is at its worst, God is at his best. Our campus pastor in our children's home in India. I've heard him say it so many times. Pastor Whaley, just a little short guy. He's translated for me many, many, many times when I've preached, but he'll be up in front of the staff in devotions or he'll be in chapel in front of the students and, and you'll see him. He'll, he'll kind of grab a hold of the pulpit and he'll get up on his tiptoes and he'll kind of lean up and he'll say, God is good. And all the people in front of him will answer all the time. And then he kind of amps it up a little bit. God is good. And everybody answers back all the time. Then you get the impression he's about to come right over the front of the thing. One more time he goes a, a, a pitch higher and a little further and he'll say all the time. And everybody answers back, God is good. Men, I can't tell you that everything in your life, everything around your life in and of itself will always be good. Bad things happen to good people. But I'm so thankful that as David learned, God is good all the time. And the goodness of God will encourage you in good times. And when you see something that is an indication of God's goodness, you can be encouraged. 
Let me give you the third thing quickly. Number three, the glory of God will motivate you at all times. The glory of God will motivate you at all times. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Men, what does it mean to glorify God? Can I give it to you very simply? It's allowing your life to become a showcase in which the goodness and greatness of God are put on display. That's what it means. Amen. Glorifying God. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. We happen to know throughout the Gospels that Jesus was a very good friend of Mary and Martha and Lazarus who lived in the village of Bethany. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother is sick. By the way, this wasn't just a sore throat. This wasn't a sinus infection. It wasn't just a case of a 24-hour stomach flu. This was bad. You say, how bad? It took his life. But it's interesting, verse 3 when the message is sent to Jesus, they said to him, He whom thou lovest is sick. You know what that says to me? Even people Jesus loves get sick. See, isn't it amazing how from a human perspective we try and interpret everything? Oh, but God, I love you. You love me. Why me? So what did Jesus do? Well, if you don't read the rest of the passages, we would all think... He just dropped what he was doing and he went racing right there. I did that last weekend. I missed a Saturday meeting because I was at the hospital with my mother. That, isn't that what you do? But I find it so interesting that when Jesus gets the report, verse 4, his response is this, this sickness is not unto death. This isn't about life and death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Verse 6, when he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place. Where, what did he do? Nothing. I know this, he stayed long enough to let Lazarus die. And from a human perspective, it would be so easy to say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not what I expected. But men, may I just remind you again, God's purpose was not to heal Lazarus, God's purpose was to get glory to himself. So eventually Jesus does go to Bethany. You know the story. He meets Martha first and then he meets Lazarus and they go to the tomb and there they weep together. And then he says, roll back the stone. Martha doesn't think that's a real good idea and I got to tell you, I wouldn't have thought it was a good idea either. Not after a dead man had been in there four days. 
But they rolled the tomb back and Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man got up off his final resting place and walked out alive. Listen, only to die again. See, isn't that interesting? Only to die again and Jesus didn't raise him the second time. See, if we're not careful, we think this story is all about sickness and death. It's not. It's about the glory of God. It's about sickness and death as being a means to bring glory to God. Folks, if you get a diagnosis of a terminal illness and you ask God to remove it, and God does, be encouraged in His goodness. If the next three month scan shows no cells, celebrate God's goodness. But understand that whether you are healthy or sick or whether you live or whether you die is still just the means to the end and the end is that God gets glorified. I used a statement a moment ago when life is at its worst, God is at its best. Can I tell you when I first heard that? I was with my father the day my brother at 39 was diagnosed with cancer. Hey guys, it's not going well for the Palmer kids, I'm just telling you. Two of the four of us have already been down this journey a long ways. I remember hearing my dad on the phone talking to my brother in Arkansas still in the hospital. And I heard him say it, and I know my brother heard him say it, and it became sort of a philosophy of life. You know what's interesting? Though my brother fought an incredible battle, God eventually did take away the cancer. Thank the Lord, the goodness of God. But I wrote my brother a letter one day, a handwritten note. He said, brother, Thank you me. Thank you for showing me how to suffer. I said, you made God look really good through it all. And I said, if I ever have to go through what you went through, I will be better prepared because I saw you do it. God was glorified. So men, how do you handle it when trouble comes? You commit your cause to God. Absolutely. But then you recognize that the grace of God is going to sustain you and the goodness of God is going to encourage you and the glory of God is going to motivate you. And then, whatever God does, it'll be all right. You know what has become one of the, the most helpful statements to me, even through some of what I've referenced this morning, 
is a simple little statement that just says, if it's okay with God, it's okay with me. I've come to believe that in many ways, prayer may be the ultimate act of surrender. It is. No, it's not just giving up, giving out, giving in. But prayer still involves surrender. God, if it's okay with you, it's okay with me. I hope that'll be helpful to you today. Because really, getting a handle on the answers to prayer can sometimes be very, very difficult. May God's will be done. Father, I thank you today for your word. Thank you for these principles. Thank you for these examples. God, I don't know who of the men here today are in trouble. But Lord, I pray that these three thoughts will get programmed into our hearts and minds and lives and will become foundational principles that will enable us to live for God, even in the worst of times. Thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.